Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by Brad Bowman. Brad Bowman serves as senior director of the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Bowman formerly served as a national security advisor for the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees, as well as an active duty U.S. Army officer and assistant professor at West Point. Roger and Brad discussed the 20th anniversary of 9-11 by looking back on the event that reshaped American national security, current U.S. policy on Afghanistan, and the future of defense. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Brad Bowman, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm excited to join you. Appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you on. Uh, I've been meaning to do so for some time. For those who, who don't know you or are not familiar with your work, you are the Senior Director of the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, um, and then you focus on U.S. defense strategy and policy. And before that, where we got to know each other, you were on Capitol Hill. You were a National Security Advisor to Senator Kelly Ayotte, uh, who served on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and after that, Senator Todd Young on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee really both uh, quite impactful senators uh, in the area of foreign policy and national security. And before that, uh, you spent 15 years on active duty as a U.S. Army officer. Uh, You flew Blackhawks, and you also served in Afghanistan. Um, Brad, are you from a military family? Not, not really. I mean, I had an uncle that served. My grandfather was in the Navy for a brief stint in World War II. But generally, no, I just I, I was raised uh, as, uh, you know, as, as a family that respected service and respected the military and as a middle class family. And I had to I, the idea of service was interesting. And I also had to think about how to pay for college. And so I, you know, I applied to the academies and was was blessed to get into uh, one or two of them. And so you were in the you were, you were OK, so I know you went to U.S. Military Academy and you had another option. Well, I applied to all of them. I wasn't smart enough to get into the Naval and Air Force Academy, but I also got into the Coast Guard Academy. So I, so I, I picked uh, West Point, and of course, I've become an ardent uh, partisan now. Uh, uh, you know, beat Navy, but uh, I, truth be told, I probably shouldn't have revealed that. I did apply to all of them, but w- was proud to be accepted at West Point. Went there and barely survived chemistry and physics. Became a poli sci major and, and, and learned a ton. And uh, when you went to to West Point, did you know anybody in your class? I mean. You- doesn't sound like you had anybody in your family who. No, was I was coming from rural Southern Oregon, and you know, as as some of the listeners may know, you have to get a, a nomination from your member of Congress, and then you have to get an appointment. So it's a really robust process, and I, I did it, and I, I had I had parents that were supportive, and and uh, you know I, I and uh, you know I just I put my name in the hat and got there, and then off I went. Uh, you know, a few weeks after high school graduation, and, and my life kind of changed from there. Yeah, that's quite, I imagine, high school in Oregon to West Point, that right. is, that's a bit of a shock to the system. Yes. Um, yeah. Was there ever a point you're like, what did I get myself yeah. into? <laughs> yes, and even when it tells you otherwise, going through any of the academies probably is probably lying to you. It's, uh, 
you know, it's, um, they, they intentionally stress you out, right? They want to see, uh, can you prioritize? Can you handle more, are you more than you've ever handled before academically, physically, militarily? But, you know, it was a transformative experience and uh, I think I'm better for it. It's one of those things that's good to have, as they say in the rear view mirror, you're glad you're from there, but you're not sure you'd want to do it twice. <laughs> so, so when we met each other on Capitol Hill um, and I found out that you had this great career in the military before Capitol, I couldn't believe it because you look so young. When did oh, you enter the U.S. Military Academy? I, I entered uh, in 91, right after graduating from high school, and I graduated in 95, and then was commissioned as a second lieutenant in 95. Okay, so you, you were there. It's uh, pre-9-11. You had, yeah. um, and, and what was the military like when you entered there? It was the end of history. It yeah. was good times. America was, the, it was the unipolar moment. Yeah, it was. It was a heady period, I, I'd say. Um, and it was definitely, you know, 9-11, you had never heard of that. It had not happened, that horrific day. And, uh, you know, you know, Bosnia, Kosovo was the stuff that happened there after graduation. But, you know, we were kind of the unipolar power. And, you know, what does this mean? Uh, the Soviet Union was gone. And, uh, but we still needed a military. We were going through, the military was going through a big downsizing, obviously, after uh, the Gulf War. And uh, Peace dividend, right? You peace were dividend, right. As Americans the peace dividend want to do. Years. We, we love to cash in that peace dividend. And then we later kind of regret that a little bit. Kind of a trend we see over and over again. Um, but yeah, so commissioned in 95, then went to, uh, to uh, flight school and then on, on into my career. All right, last question about your very cool history. Uh, when did you decide you wanted to fly Blackhawks? Yeah, no, the way it works, and thanks for asking, the way it works in the academy is, you know, the, everyone is ranked from the, the, the lowest cadet to the highest ranking cadet on military, physical, and academic. And so you put in your wish list for like all the little sub branches of the army. And so I, I put aviation as number one. And I wasn't the smartest guy, but, you know, I was fairly well rounded. So I was high enough ranked to get my top choice. So I, I got army aviation, went there and competed and, and got a, a transition to Blackhawks, which was pretty fun and exciting. And, and, uh, and, the, and then the career started from there. Well, um, we're going to talk about uh, Afghanistan later on, but um, I know you served in Afghanistan. Um, did you ever get a chance to fly a Blackhawk in Afghanistan? No, I didn't. So my, my seven, I was in Army Aviation flying actively as a platoon leader, company commander, that sort of thing for seven years. Um, and and that, maybe we'll talk later. That's where I was on 9-11 in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Uh, but then I applied to go back and teach at West Point. So I went and studied full-time uh, graduate school for two years, taught at West Point for three. One year as a CFR fellow in, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, working for Luger, doing his Middle East portfolio, traveling around to seven countries, and then two years in the Pentagon, and then six months in Afghanistan, working under McMaster and uh, McChrystal. Uh, came back, got out kind of unusually at the 15 and a half year mark. And then that's where my eight years in the Senate started. To, uh, yeah, that is out. unusual. Usually some people who are there for 15 years are like, yeah. I'm going to take it to 20, right? And then yeah. you get the working age retiree benefits. Yeah, yeah there's Did you a not get good financial, financial advice yeah. from your, I don't know, the military personnel side of the house? Yeah, no, it's uh, my, my friends thought I was either uh, stupid or courageous, uh, foolish or courageous. And, and it was kind of 50-50 on where they came down. Um, you know, there's a, you know, both inertia and financial incentive kind of push you at that point to stay, right? Because if I'd stayed four and a half more years, I could have cashed in on that retirement. But, you know, studying politics and foreign policy at Yale, teaching at West Point, getting a little taste of it as a fellow under Luger, 
And then going back to the Pentagon as a major where you're, you know, you're basically deputy assistant coffee boy. You know, it was like, oh man, you know, I, I see some other options here. Deputy assistant coffee boy. That's distinguished. Now, and, and yeah. No disrespect meant to deputy assistant coffee boys. All work is, if it's moral and then it's honorable and all work is good. But, uh, you know, you know, I was, I was, it was at West Point, I was trying to write and publish and heady stuff. And I just loved the world of ideas and foreign policy and grand strategy. And uh, I thought maybe I could contribute in a different way. And so, uh, with with uh, with my better half support, we we took a risk, and uh, I literally was uh, two hours away from accepting a job from with defense industry, where I would have walked away from 15, 20 years of federal service with nothing to show for it. When I got the call from Senator Kelly Ayotte's office, and that that basically was the break of a lifetime. And well, Ca Capitol Hill benefited uh, from uh, from that time. decision, and and Senator Kelly Ayotte was was really instrumental uh, on a lot of the policies we'll get to when we talk about Afghanistan. Really understanding the nature of the uh, threat of terrorism, uh, what was required to prevail in, in Afghanistan. She was quite prominent also in, in terms of how uh, to prevail in Iraq. Um, but let's talk about where you are today, kind of the, the, the experience teaching at West Point and Yale. Um, now you, you lead this center at the Foundation for Defense and Democracies. Why, why was that uh, the move? And and you know they didn't have you're as far as I'm aware the first person to lead their center on military and political power. What is that about? Why is military yeah. power almost like you know a gap area in the world of think tanks and foreign policy and national security thinking? No, thank you for that question sincerely. I I, I love to talk about our center because I go I, for it. Now's your time. I, I, but <laughs> I, I won't I won't go on for five hours. So you know so I'll, I'll keep it short. But there really is a need for a think tank. Uh, to be outcome focused and be agile and be more in, and, and see the op-ed and the research as the first thing you do, not the last thing you do, and really want to make outcomes and gains for our country and do damage to our adversaries. And so I, I came across FDD. I admired their work. I admired the lack of ambiguity and what I would call moral clarity on good versus evil and terrorism bad, authoritarianism bad, democracy good. I mean, things that used to be not controversial, but, uh, you know, that I still believe. Uh, and uh, and that um, that having allies is, are not a liability; they're, they're an asset, and they need to be nurtured. And so, just that moral clarity, that policy strategic clarity, combined with kind of a, a special forces of the think tank world agility and outcome focus, was really appealing to me. But FDD was founded right after the 9/11 terror attacks. By the way, they were in discussions before it. You know, I, I've learned if you want to learn about a think tank, learn about their genesis story. Why were they created and when? And that kind of tells you their DNA. And mm, that's 9-11 is FDD's DNA. So there was a huge focus on terrorism um, and, but, and, and sanctions and Iran policy. But what I really wanted to do with this new center, which I helped establish under General H.R. McMaster's leadership, was to focus on, on, on the tools of power, the military and diplomatic tools of power, based on the belief that too often we have a trouble converting battlefield success to political success or, or political outcomes like we've seen in Afghanistan, for example. And so I wanted to bring that agility and that outcome focus focused on the uh, defense and diplomatic tools of power. And I wanted to kind of make it look at where there's going to be a decision made in the next one to 18 time, months time frame, and then roll in with the research and the publications and then the subsequent briefings, which is kind of key to try to get those decisions made in a way that will benefit the United States and our allies and do damage to our adversaries. So I want to come back to kind of translating battlefield success into political success. That's quite timely. Um, but just before we leave your center, and to, you know, you mentioned Chairman 
uh, of the center is H.R. McMaster, of course, President Trump's not security advisor, retired three-star general, uh, quite accomplished uh, historian. But you also have uh, Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense and Director of C uh, Central Intelligence, prominent Democrat, also. So is FDD and your work at the center nonpartisan or bipartisan? Yeah. Is that nonpartisan? Yeah, we're a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit and proud of it. You know, we don't take money from foreign governments, proud of it, nonpartisan, proud of it. And, uh, you know, we don't want to be partisan hacks. We want to be operating in the 40 yard lines, working with people, viewing our people of the other party, not as our enemies and our adversaries, but our fellow citizens working together toward common good. And so that's why I'm so proud that Leon Panetta's on our board. And when we published our big Defending Ford monograph last December, he wrote the Ford for it and it included a chapter by H.R. McMaster. And we have other dignitaries on our board as well. Well, that's great work. Uh, you referenced before 9-11, of course, we've commemorated uh, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, this might be the hardest anniversary uh, since those attacks in 2001. Um, tell us about where you were, Brad, on 9-11-2001. Sure. No, thanks for the question. It's uh, as I've said before, it's one of those events and for people that are old enough where you remember where you were. My, my mother remembers where she was when Kennedy was assassinated and people of our age and older remember where they were on 9-11. On September 11, 2001, I was an active duty U.S. Army officer and pilot serving as company commander of Charlie Company 12th Aviation Battalion at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. We were an H-60 helicopter company. Our day-to-day -day mission was flying congressional staff and DOD leaders, pretty much everyone below the president around the mid-Atlantic region. And we also had a classified mission, you know, related to kind of our nation's worst day. Um, on that day, I made the decision as company commander to fly two of our Blackhawk helicopters down to Fort AP Hill in kind of middle Virginia to do a nine millimeter qualifying range. Uh, we were there when we heard that the first tower was hit. Uh, like everyone, we thought it was an accident. We heard the second tower was hit. I made the decision, holy cow, we need to get back our helicopters back to uh, Fort Belvoir because we might need to do missions. As we were getting in the van to get back to our helicopters, the range tower, kind of the person that runs the, the range said, uh, informed us that the Pentagon had been hit. And so we flew, got in our helicopters and flew back as quickly as we could um, to our base, came in low and fast. Because you were allowed to fly, excuse me, just as we were allowed yeah, to no. fly. I would have assumed, I know obviously all commercial air uh, was grounded. Uh, after yeah. after the second tower was hit, and but yes. I, I never actually thought about what direction the military was given in terms of air assets and how that was organized. So you were yes. able to return your your Blackhawks back to station. we were we were, and and then it gets even more interesting that night. So that day we were instrumental in helping to get a lot of uh, top leaders out of Washington D.C. because we we thought that maybe a subsequent attack might be coming. So there was an effort to get leaders for continuity of government and Pentagon purposes out of DC, out of the, the big red target uh, to these hide sites. This was a continuity of operations type um, yes, year. Yeah, so we were focused on army leaders, Pentagon leaders, getting them out of, uh, and so that's what my unit was doing. I managed that from Fort Belvoir. And then that night we got a request uh, to um, go pick up Deputy Secretary of Defense Wolfowitz from one of these hide sites. So I put myself on that mission. And by that time, to get to your point, all aircraft in the United States were grounded. And so the only aircraft flying at that moment that I know of were, was the AWAC aircraft, the kind of the airborne radar aircraft, Warning, and yep. then the fighters, and then us. So we took off from our base at Fort Belvoir and went to the hide site. 
to pick up Deputy Secretary of Defense Wolfowitz. We thought we were going to take him to CIA headquarters. When we were flying back, he informed us that he wanted us to go to the Pentagon. And so we diverted to the Pentagon, flying down the Potomac River. This is the night of September 11th. Uh, we, we, we bank hard over Memorial Bridge. There's still smoke rising off the Pentagon. We circled to land as I had done several times before. You know, it's, you know later I, I'd go there at least once or twice a week to our helipad. Our helipad was at the point of impact and was destroyed by the plane that. So this is the helipad at the Pentagon that was. The destroyed. helipad at the Pentagon where we were going to land to drop him off uh, was at the point of impact and was destroyed. So we ended up landing in kind of the cloverleaf on the freeway there, which had been shut down. And there were other emergency vehicles and um, other helicopters parked there. We got it. Deputy Secretary Wolf went, knocked on the window, saluted, and walked off toward the still smoking hole in the Pentagon. Um, and then uh, um, we flew back to our base and actually got the, the, the fighter actually swooped down on us as we were on short final developer. I still don't know why he did that. He was having fun with us, but that startled everyone so much. They, and he hit his afterburners. People thought there was an explosion. But uh, anyway, it's something I'd like to talk about fighter. But anyway, the, the, um, the next day, they, um, uh, the next few days, they started to bring the, uh, the remains of those killed in the Pentagon to Fort Belvoir. Mortuary Affairs teams uh, did their, their important, uh, tough work, and, and then uh, helicopters were going out to Dover. And then uh, on September 14th, um, my unit took the Pennsylvania congressional delegation to Shanksville. I flew as a flying spare. And so two day, uh, three days after 9-11, I was at Shanksville, and I'll, I'll never forget, uh, you know, thinking how could a whole plane disappear? Of course, like all of our, our fellow citizens, we learned later that the heroism of the people on that board prevented that plane from hitting our Capitol or the White House. And then a few days later, all of this within the first week after 9-11, we took the Army Surgeon General to Ground Zero, uh, flying right past. I could already start to smell Ground Zero when we were halfway through New Jersey. And then we flew right past Ground Zero and I looked down on it. And then we landed on the USS Comfort, which is a hospital ship, which was docked midtown Manhattan. Was that Hudson? Off. Exactly. And then the, 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 the extraordinary thing for me was that just three weeks prior, so two weeks before 9-11, we flew right, past, right up the Hudson River there on our way to the Sikorsky plant in Connecticut to pick up two new Black Hawk helicopters. I leaned over in my right seat. I still have it in my photo album and took pictures of the World Trade Towers. You can see the helicopter blades in my picture. And there, and there I was three weeks later and they were gone. I haven't met anybody, I don't think, other than perhaps... It, one encounter with President Bush, who, who I'm sure I don't even know if President Bush went to all three sites within the within the, the week. I suppose he did. Um, it's highly unusual, Brad, to for anybody uh, in the military that military at that time to go be at the Pentagon, World Trade Center, of course, Pennsylvania. Within it sounds like within a week of 9/11. Yeah, no, it, it's um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's, a, it's a massive understatement to say that it made an impact on me. Okay, so you've described what you were doing, uh, and as a U.S. military academy trained Army officer, I guess that's what you're trained to do, right? You don't think, you just carry out the mission. But as you reflect on it, or at the time, if you had a moment to think, what was going through your head? I mean, what were you, what, yeah. what, what were, how are you processing? I mean, you're yeah. seeing so much, you're seeing the actual site impact, you're transporting the Deputy Secretary of Defense back to the site, you're up in the World Trade Center, you're out in Shanksville. I mean, this is this is a lot to take in, and, and you know, obviously you're well-trained, but you're still a, a relatively young military officer at the time. 
Yeah, no, thanks for asking that. It's, I'm still reflecting on it, you know, like 20 years later. And, and you know, and I think most of, you know, the, the families that lost loved ones on the day, you know, they, they're the ones that have truly suffered. And I think of them uh, often, and especially on, on, the, on the anniversaries. Um, you know, I, I think like a lot of Americans, I, there was just kind of a shattering a, a, of a sense of security and, in, and in almost invincibility. And, and I, you know, we were in those days right after 9-11, we were working late. Uh, we were expecting subsequent attacks uh, during the subsequent Ramadan. We, we moved aircraft to Andrews Air Force Base and had them on a shorter recall in anticipation, anticipating additional attacks. And you know, I remember one night driving home in my flight suit and I, I needed gas. So I pulled into a gas station and, and I was there and in the bright lights at night in the gas station. For the first time in my life, I thought I had a feeling of my safe here. And I had never felt that as American before. And I, I, it sounds a little wimpy now to say it, but you know, I, I felt that way. And so I think, um, and so I think back on the, the patriotism and unity, which seems so distant now with our politics being so tribal and vitriolic and increasingly dangerous, I think. Uh, I think of the unity, I, I, I long for that unity that we had. I long for the clarity of good and evil that we had. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, and I'm still reflecting, I'm still learning, but you know, I was blessed to be able to have the army, like I said, go study full time for two years. And, a large part of what I did there, and in, in, in addition to studying foreign policy and grand strategy, was I, I asked myself, who were these people that did this to us? Who, who did this? Why did they do it? And what do we do about it? And that's why so I spent two years full time basically studying that and then shared what I learned with cadets the following three years. And then uh, some years later, um, you find yourself in Afghanistan with all that training and that experience in 9-11. Of course, we're in Afghanistan precisely because uh, Al-Qaeda planned the attack from Afghanistan. Uh, and you're there with H.R. McMaster. Tell me about that. Yeah, so, you know, I went as an individual augmentee. So I was, you know, I was, I was a major. I didn't deploy as part of a, a battalion or a brigade or a brigade combat team. I deployed as an individual officer. What was you didn't go with a unit. You're just I didn't go with a unit. I went by myself. So I went through kind of the pre-deployment training uh, and then deployed by myself as a staff officer. So at that point, I, I was I was a strategist. I was an army strategist and no longer actively flying. When I went to grad school, I put the flying days behind me. So I was just a staff officer. And um, what I ended up doing there <laughs> uh, was uh, helping to design and stand up in the first three months, Task Force 2010 is for the year. The focus of this task force and uh, your father actually, as part of his commission on wartime contracting work uh, testified later and said um, that the, uh, the second leading source of revenue for the Taliban was extortion of US contracts in Afghanistan. So we kind of, we didn't understand the magnitude of the problem at the time, but we knew that we had a problem in our supply network. So the purpose of this task force- Let's Just break that down, extortion of US contracts. For the listener who perhaps doesn't quite understand how that worked, just give us a kind of a sure. rough example of sure. what would happen. Sure, here's exactly, thank you for that. No, it's, it's a great way to lay it out specifically. So. You have patriotic, hardworking Americans and, and coalition partners in Afghanistan trying to do good and make a difference and help the Afghan people and create a more secure country. And so like people in USAID, US Agency for International Development, you know, they have a budget. They want to spend that budget by the end of the fiscal year or they won't get some of it the following year. And by the way, they want to do good. So they'll go build a school or a well or something like that. And they might sometimes do it outside of the security envelope. And then who shows up the next night or the next week, but the Taliban and basically makes clear that, hey, not first tier contractor, 
second, third, fourth, fifth tier contractor, you need to give us some of that money or you know, your family's gonna die or you're going to die. And, and, and our, our, our contracting, our acquisition legislation was designed for peacetime Maryland, not wartime Afghanistan. And so what I'm describing was an, a forensic auditing exercise, an intelligence exercise, a contracting exercise, and so um, we stood that up and, and, and later we found out that we saved, uh, I'm proud to say tens of millions of dollars from going in the hands of the bad guys, clearly not enough, but we, we made a difference. And then in the last three months when we had the whole transition between McChrystal and Petraeus, which we won't go through now, uh, uh, Petraeus brought in um, General McMaster uh, to stand up combined joint interagency task force Shafa Fiat focused on, wait for it, wait for it, corruption in the Afghan government. Because if you believe in insurgency and counterinsurgency, is a competition in gov for governance to win the hearts and minds of the people. If you have a corrupt Afghan government, that is a existential threat to that government competing effectively in that competition for governance. So much there. Um, talking about General McMaster, General Petraeus, General McMaster. I mean, some of these you know leading uh, lights in the U.S. military, and and they all had their time in Afghanistan over this uh, long war. But but let's fast forward. Here we are, 20th anniversary, just after 20th anniversary of 9-11, and President Biden has pulled out the U.S. military from Afghanistan. The Taliban now controls the seat of government in Kabul. It happened in 11 days. Uh, the Trump administration put an agreement in place um, for this withdrawal of U.S. forces, the Biden administration, according to them, felt obligated. They, they, they couldn't uh, negotiate their way out of it. Um, and now we find a Taliban government made up of, uh, let's say, four or five former detainees from Guantanamo Bay, and their minister of interior is Haqqani, uh, who is wanted by our FBI uh, and has these strong familial and personal links to the terrorist organization, the Haqqani Network, as deemed by our uh, government. You, Brad, have been outspoken early on, seeing this train wreck coming, and have continued through uh, the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal, along with H.R. McMaster, to highlight the concerns. Uh, your first piece, before the Taliban, came through and captured Kabul, anticipated this, uh, and, and identified steps uh, we could take to, in your words, how to avert disaster in Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, Brad, this has gone the way you feared most. Did this have to happen? Was it inevitable? So the question I'm going to start with, Brad, is if we would have maintained a residual force, that's fancy speak for 3,500 or 2,500 U.S. forces, keep a base in Bagram, would we have had to pull out anyway? Would we have lost U.S. forces? Would the government and Kabul have fallen to the Taliban if we would maintain that presence? Thanks for the question. I've spent a whole heck of a lot of time writing and thinking about this. And everything I say, I say with humility. And I know that there are patriotic, good intentioned people uh, on the other side of this debate. So I, I mean that sincerely. But with the, the, the mind that God has given me and the time that I've spent on this earth, my answer to your question is, this is absolutely not the way it had to go down. This was a preventable and predictable disaster. 
President Biden repeated his playbook from Iraq in 2011. I was there in the U.S. Senate with a second row seat behind John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and Kelly Ayotte, warning the, the then uh, Obama administration not to do a timeline-based conditions ignoring withdrawal from Iraq, with then Vice President Biden being the leading advocate for doing that. They blew them off. They did it anyway. That catalyzed a series of events that resulted in the ISIS caliphate. We had to return at a higher cost in 2014. President Biden was warned repeatedly by his intelligence community. I've laid this out in one of, in an NBC News piece. Uh, he was warned by his chairman, his own Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who oversaw the withdrawal from Iraq in 2011 and should know, said, according to the New York Times, quote, unquote, we've seen this movie before, quote, unquote, Mr. President, the, that movie being a conditions ignoring withdrawal that we come to regret. So President conditions Biden, ignoring withdrawal, basically you're saying, you know, President Biden, he had history here, this in 2011 with Iraq, it's repeated here. Now, I don't care what the heck's going on, on the ground. I'm committed to pulling out. Yes. And I'm just going to pursue that irrespective yes. of yes. conditions. And his Secretary of Defense, the former general, retired general, cent commander of Central Command, responsible for Iraq, Afghanistan, the greater Middle East, told him, we've seen this before, referring to Iraq. And what was Correct. the president's response? Correct. The president's response was, uh, he and, and he and uh, General Milley basically did at least two interventions, including right before the April 14th announcement. President Biden brushed those aside, brushed aside the warnings of his intelligence community that if we did such a withdrawal, that the Taliban and their Al Qaeda partners would make significant gains and potentially topple the government in Kabul. President Biden proceeded on April 14th to make the announcement using the Trump administration agreement with the Taliban as a fig leaf, in my opinion, to do what he wanted to do anyways. Why do I say that? I say that because if you actually look at the February 2020 agreement, part two, paragraphs one, two, and three, the Taliban committed to breaking with Al-Qaeda. Anyone who's been paying attention more than five minutes would tell you they were never going to do that. And so we are in a two-party agreement and the other party never complied. So your point so here is responding to the Biden administration contention, the president himself has said as much, that we were bound, that is the U.S. government, the United States was bound to this agreement the Trump administration made to the Taliban that we would withdraw our forces. Biden extended it from the April timeline. It wasn't feasible. Obviously, it was till September. But your point is the Taliban was in breach. So as a kind of, if you really are going to hang your hat on that right. argument, we were not bound to it because they were in breach. Correct. I mean, if you're going to, if we're going to be a legalist about this, which I, President Biden, I think, kind of is, then I mean, who would who would honor a private contract, a two party contract, and the other party never complied from the beginning? So I mean, uh, you know, it, let, let's what about just the argument that listen, hey, but it was done, and it would just endanger more U.S. forces. Okay. Right. Right. And. This civil war was ongoing, it's raging, and you know, boots on the ground weren't gonna stop it. So you yeah. just kind of need to pull the band-aid off no matter what yeah. what the cost, no matter how much it hurts. No, thank you. I I I, I at this point I've heard every counter argument and I think I have a good one for it. Well good, I'm trying to get you fired up. We don't have enough time probably, but uh, you know, I've got 20 years of evidence to say that if we provided some level of support for the Afghan security forces, that we could prevent uh, the government from falling and prevent Afghanistan from being used as a safe haven and launching pad for international terror. We tried what the Indian endless war crowd wanted. We tried what Biden wanted and look what we got. 
And here's an essential point, Roger, that I'd love to make with your permission is a lot of people are trying to hang most or all of the catastrophe we're seeing in Afghanistan on how the withdrawal was conducted rather than the decision to withdraw itself. And the, that's a fundamental point because in the coming months, years, and maybe even decades, we're gonna, it's gonna, people are gonna be pointing fingers. I don't care who's up or down the polls. It's not about the next election, but we gotta stop the self-delusion and we gotta really get to the bottom line. The bottom line is we would have ended up where we are today, even if we have done the withdrawal perfectly, maybe we would have gotten more Americans out. Maybe we would have gotten more Afghan special immigrant visas out, but you would have ended up in, in six months or two years with a Taliban-controlled Al-Qaeda-partnered government in Kabul with all that that means for a terrorist safe haven and all that means for Afghan women and girls and refugee flows and so forth. So it was inevitable in your mind, even if there would have been a more orderly withdrawal of U.S. forces, right? So you, know, you let's just say we didn't pull our US, mil U.S. military forces out of Bagram Airfield and kept them there to have a more orderly evacuation effort for U.S. citizens. The point is, I hear you making, is that the Taliban always intended, as you wrote in uh, the Wall Street Journal, to isolate and overthrow the government in Kabul. It would have happened. But, but the, the key point is that the Biden administration says that that pressure from the Taliban would have only increased if we would have stayed. And it was questionable whether or not the U.S. forces, the mere presence, would have done enough to sustain this un, let's say, uh, ineffective uh, government in Kabul. Friendly, but ineffective. You know, Roger, we could have a, a lengthy and substantive discussion. I would, I would welcome at some point about all that went wrong with the 20 year uh, US effort in Afghanistan. There's much to criticize. I am not here to say that it was conducted perfectly. I could give you a, you know, a two hour lecture on that. But here's the point, and, and I really think this is important context for your listeners to consider. You know, we, we, had, we had somewhere between 2,500 and 3,500 troops in Afghanistan in April when Biden made the announcement, okay? Those numbers are like, okay, what does that mean? Let me put those numbers, let me put the, let's just say 3,000. Let's put the number 3,000 in context. We have 486,000 active duty U.S. Army troops, 486,000. You know how many we had on Capitol Hill after January 6th? We had 26,000. We had 26,000 U.S. service members on Capitol Hill after January 6th. We had 3,000 in Afghanistan. What were we as a country getting for that investment of 3,000? We were preventing what we've, the catastrophe we're seeing now. We were securing the gains that Afghan women and girls made. We were preventing another 9-11 attack from that country. And we were preventing refugee flows to destabilize nuclear in Pakistan. I, for one, think that America is a great power and we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And we could have retained, pick your number, three to 5,000 in that country, and we could have prevented this from happening. What were we doing? And this goes right directly to the president's point. We were providing intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, training, advice, and assistance, and air support and contract support. Okay. <laughs> we were not at that point. We, at one point, we had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan. We were down to around 3,000. Well, well yeah, we were, I mean, that gets this, this nomenclature of forever wars, right? And, yes, and, it does. Yeah. You know, you have... Uh, uh, good language in 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 your op-ed that you wrote subsequently after the uh, things went out of control in Afghanistan. Um, you know, when when he decided to withdraw, it was thirty five hundred forces you've laid out. It wasn't the, the forever war. To some people who thought it was, you know, call it that, ended in twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. 
when we had these steep drawdowns. And, and I think you could argue, tell me if you disagree, that basically between 2016 and 2021, we have taken an economy of force approach in Afghanistan. We basically said, what's the minimal footprint required to counter the terrorist threat and to sustain this government in Kabul? Not because we're trying to turn Afghanistan into some Western democracy, but just because that's the minimum necessary. So we internalized the lesson of 9-11, which was we can't allow this place to be a safe haven because if we do, terrorists will plan and carry attacks against our interests and perhaps the homeland. No, that's exactly right. And you, without belaboring the point too much, I mean, we've long had in this country individuals on the far left and the far right who have never seen a military deployment they didn't want to withdraw. I get that, that's fine, that's, the, that's their position. What we now have is people in the center, China hawks, and I consider myself a China hawk, I consider China the number one threat we confront, but what, uh, and, and unambiguously so, um, but then some people follow that, that principle and correct position of being a China hawk with, you know, and therefore we need to withdraw from the Middle East or, or South Asia. And my response to that is great power competition is a global one and it happens in the Middle East too. And if you're only concerned about competing with China, the last thing you want to do is what we did in Afghanistan, because what do we think the NSC has been focused on for the last month? What, what, and, and, and in the end, you're going to have to go back and invest more resources in Afghanistan, just like you did in Iraq. So if your only focus is in China, this was a bad idea. And, and maybe some of your, your listeners and viewers have seen the, uh, the, the article about China potentially being interested in, in occupying Bagram Air Base, the base we just gave up a few weeks ago. So, um, you know, as a, are we a great power or not? Uh, you know, do we stand by our allies? Do we believe in democracy? Do we believe that our interests sometimes require to us to defend forward and confront terrorists there and deprive them of breathing space so they can't kill us here? That seems to be one of the core lessons of 9-11. And I fear that too many of our political leaders have forgotten that. Yeah, well, I, I think you're right on the great power point. The definition of great power for me is a country that can do more than one thing at a time. And, and, and in this 21st global, uh, global economy, you have to be dominant in multiple regions of the world. You can't just pick one and, and ignore the rest. Um, is the Taliban our enemy? Yes, absolutely. The Taliban has the, the blood of hundreds and thousands, hundreds and thousands of Americans on their hands. The Taliban is a misogynist and murderous terrorist organization and recognizing them as a legitimate government of Afghanistan would be a grave mistake. Do you think we're on the cusp of recognizing them? I, I, I believe because President Biden implemented a timeline-based withdrawal that ignored conditions on the ground and left behind 100 to 200 Americans and thousands of Afghan special immigrants and visa partners who are vulnerable and some of whom are being hunted as we speak. Because he did that, he created an opportunity for terrorist extortion where the Taliban can make demands of us in order to get their cooperation to get our citizens out. And what are they asking? Right now, almost certainly, this is me guessing with educated guesses, they want sanctions relief so they can travel the world and fundraise. And don't and be clear, Taliban fundraising is Al-Qaeda fundraising. It's Haqqani fundraising. And they want recognition. And they understand that roughly 80% of their economy is coming from international aid. And so they understand that international aid won't flow without recognition. And key to that recognition is American recognition. Well, I think the aid is already continuing in. I mean, yeah, some of it is. Some of it is. But it won't flow the way they want it to and need it to unless you get the Western powers coming in and supporting some of that. But you're exactly right. Um, so, you well, know, you, so you'll oppose all of that. I mean, there's, there's, there's... So I, 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 um, I, 
the Taliban, I, I am not willing to outsource American counterterrorism to the Taliban. And the reason I'm not is because the Taliban and Al Qaeda are attached at the hip. And yeah, two, two think, more questions on that because you've written with H.R. McMaster, uh, I'll read you say, some in Washington draw a bold line between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. In reality, those groups are intertwined, and a Taliban victory is a victory for the group that murdered nearly 3,000 innocents on 9-11. Uh, if you talk to Secretary of State Blinken, he would simply say, right now, it's in the Taliban's interest to cooperate with us. So just shy of saying that we should recognize them, but, but kind of not hitting the point of whether they're intertwined, just saying we can work with them. You don't think we can work? There's no higher priority than getting Americans to safety. And I used to proudly say Americans don't leave Americans behind. Uh, that's, that's what the Biden administration did here. And I think it's shameful. Um, you know, uh, the, the real quick, Roger, if I may, the, you know, um, Al-Qaeda, you know, the current interim prime minister of the just announced uh, Taliban government, uh, Akund, he's the one that said after 9-11, quote, we will never give up Osama bin Laden at any price. And the other quick point I would make is that it's not, not that they, the Taliban didn't just sep, not separate from Al Qaeda. They actually coordinated with Al Qaeda over the last four to six weeks. A lot of people are like, how did the Taliban do so well in the North where there aren't as many Pashtuns? The answer is that they worked with Al Qaeda and Al Qaeda affiliates who are Tajiks and Uzbeks. So not only did they not separate, they coordinated their offensive. Uh, and, and, and so they remain attached to them. So if you recognize the Taliban, you're recognizing Al Qaeda. What about President Biden's argument that says, and the Taliban's are, they're, they're, you know, they're not good guys, you know, it's not that we trust these guys. Um, but in his judgment, we could address the terrorist threat through, quote, over the horizon capabilities. Uh, you write with H.R. McMaster that that approach failed in the 1990s and is failing again now. U.S. aircraft flying from the Persian Gulf to conduct sporadic airstrikes can't stop the Taliban's onslaught. Was the basic lesson of 9-11 from a military standpoint, from a strategist standpoint, somebody who served in the military for 15 years like yourself, who studied in West Point and taught at West Point, was the basic takeaway is over the horizon doesn't work? America has, is the most mobile, lethal military in the history of the world. We're better at over the horizon counterterrorism strikes than any military in the world. No other military could have done what we did at Kabul airport. Our service members were heroes in what they did at Kabul airport in a horrible situation that they should have never been in. But we tried the over the horizon approach in the 1990s when President Bill Clinton launched a few cruise missiles at some empty tents, didn't work then. You know when else we tried the over the horizon technique? We tried it in the month of August <laughs> and it failed. And we went from August- That was in response to the attack around Kabul airport where 13 U.S. troopers were killed. Well, yes, but before that, I mean, the, the, if I were to say that, you know, the, the two or three things that really brought about catastrophe, I would say the Trump 2020 deal with the Taliban basically gave a date, certain date withdrawal. So the Taliban started going around to provincial leaders and say, you know, they're leaving, you know, join us or die. And then pulling air support and pulling, pulling contract maintenance and logistics support, and those were both Biden decisions, and if, and if you talk to, if you listen to commander, Afghan commanders, they'll tell you those were the kind of the, the triple blow right there. That's what went, took us from a situation where the Taliban didn't control a single provincial capital on August 4th or 5th to overthrowing the, the country in 11 days. So um, 
uh, yeah, no. So I, I think uh, I think it's it's pretty clear. We got to jump to our, our lightning round here, but before we exit this conversation on 9/11 uh, and Afghanistan, um, you hear a lot of people talking about remember, remember 9/11. Is your biggest concern is that we're not remembering the right thing as we deal with Afghanistan today? That we've forgotten the most important things to remember from 9/11. I think so. It's so it's so difficult to succinctly summarize something that's so profound for our country. But uh, you know, you mentioned if just very quickly, if I may, you mentioned that forever wars are ending endless war narrative. And and you know, Secretary Panetta, whom we mentioned, who's on our, our board and served as Secretary of Defense and, and Director of the Central Intelligence Agency, wrote the forward for that monograph in December. I keep mentioning, and he made the point in there that you know every military intervention requires scrutiny, every military campaign requires scrutiny. And every military withdrawal also requires scrutiny. It's not an incoherent belief to say that it was a mistake to invade Iraq in 2003, and it was also a mistake to withdraw in 2011. That is a coherent position. And we need to stop blurring decisions to start with an intervention or how you conduct it with the decision to withdraw. And we have to understand that not everything is about us. Sometimes there's just evil people in the world that need to be opposed. And if you don't oppose them there, you're gonna see them on the streets of New York. And so to me, that's a core lesson. Sobering words from Brad Bowman, our guest. We're going to move to our lightning round, uh, which is where our guests share their favorite Reagan quote, speech, or book. Give us one, two, or all three. What do you got, Brad? So thank you. Um, no, I, I, when, I, when I heard that this question might be coming, I, I, I started to feel overwhelmed because it'll sound like I'm playing to my audience. But uh, you know, my first political memory was a Jimmy Carter State of the Union address. That'll tell you how old I am and what a, a geek I was at an early age. But then I, I thoroughly was a Reagan kid growing up. And uh, there, there's so many. Uh, this will show what a, what a C-SPAN geek I am when I say that I, my, probably my favorite is President Reagan's March 23, 1983 speech which is widely known as a Star Wars speech, but I don't love it for the Star Wars reason. I love it because if you look at the first part of that speech, he talks about how we should determine how much we spend on defense. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he has a quote in there where he talks about, don't tell me that you wanna cut this much money or this percent or this, this many billion dollars. Tell me what you wanna do without and why we don't need that and what risks we're gonna take as a result of that cut. At this time, in this place, in this moment where I see Great power comes with China and Russia, North Korea, Iran, and terrorism like we've been discussing. Threats getting worse, not better. I just don't understand how this administration can be proposing a defense budget that doesn't even keep up with inflation. So I, I would love for folks to look at what Reagan said about the right way to determine defense spending. It's not about cutting X percent or Y percent. It's what do we need to do to defend our country? That's where you start. Brad Bowman, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for being on the show. We look forward to having you back.